Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we analyse everything and anything to do with Australian politics and more. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube, or you can go straight to our website at newpolitics.com.au. In this episode, we look at the Super Saturday of federal by-elections, the future of public broadcasting in Australia, and we look at an uncivilised debate about Western civilization. I'm Eddie Djokovic, the editor of New Politics. And I'm David Lewis, historian, musician and lecturer. It's been an interesting month in politics. There's always many things to investigate and, like rust, politics never sleeps. We've got a few by-elections coming up, but we've had to wait a long, long time. Five by-elections on July 28, held across four states, WA, South Australia, Tasmania and Queensland. Are you interested in these by-elections at all, David? By-elections generally don't mean a lot. They happen regularly. Uh, members find that they resign, they get ill, um, they get sick of it, sometimes they die. Five is enough, I think, to look at a trend, you know, to see if the government is as unpopular as the poll suggests it might be. The seat of Longman in Queensland, for example... Is it Reach Tell who has going down to a government win? Reach Tell has commissioned three polls for the seat of Longman, Braddon and Mayo. In the seat of Mayo, they've suggested the incumbent, Rebecca Sharkey, she'll actually win her seat against Georgina Downer. And in, in Longman, yes, they do predict a victory for, for the Liberal Party and also in Braddon, which is in Tasmania, they're predicting a victory for the Liberal Party. But these polls are very unreliable and also so far away from the actual date of the by-elections. I'm just wondering, what can we read into this? I, I think we are looking at a very unpopular government. I think we're looking at a government, for a government that's really only in its second term, it feels like a third or fourth term government that has done since almost day one, where all its better members have resigned or moved on. And it's now filled with the hacks who have managed to float into positions they should never have got, but there was no one else. Or young up-and-comers who aren't ready for the responsibility that they have to take because there's no one else. Um, Yeah, it feels closer to, say, the Howard government in 2007 or the Hawke government and Keating governments towards the end of their tenures than it does a a new government that should only be really hitting its stride about now. We probably, irrespective of who wins these these seats, and I'm, I'm suggesting that it will probably be Rebecca Sharkey that keeps her seat in the seat of Mayo, and other seats should be held by the by the Labor Party as well. And there's, there's a little bit of history here where there's only one seat that has ever been taken by the government from an opposition at a by-election, and that was the seat of Kalgoorlie in 1920. And so these sort of things, where the government takes the seat from an opposition, they are very rare events. And I'm not anticipating that that will change after July the 28th. Having said that, we've seen in recent years things that haven't happened since the 1920s, most notably a, a prime minister losing his own seat in a general election as a sitting prime minister with, with John Howard, the only time that had happened before in Australia was in 1929 with uh, Stanley Melbourne Brutes, who lost to a radical unionist, as it happened, uh, who only lasted one term and Bruce was back in 31. It's very interesting. And the length of the 
by-election too. The, the New England Barnaby Joyce election happened very quickly. It was done and dusted in three or four weeks. Although, given everything that happened since, you can probably see the strategy behind that. It's a very long time for an election. I, I suspect it's about the maximum time. For a general election, there are fairly strict regulations uh, relating to that. But with by-elections, it's pretty much whatever the government decides to do and whatever they can get away with. On the New Politics podcast, we do like to look at history. The 1903 by-election for East Sydney, it was actually held 17 days after George Reid resigned. And so I think it's up to the incumbent government to decide whenever they want to have that by-election. So 17 days, that's the quickest by-election after a resignation. These series of five by-elections, the so-called Super Saturday, that's almost two and a half months. That's just a really long period of time. It's a, a very risky strategy for the government too, unless they realise the incumbents are going to hold the seats and there's nothing in it for them. It risks you know, electoral fatigue. There is a two, two to three percent backlash on this type of stuff. The other thing, too, is that they put it on the day of the ALP conference, and that was a, a stupid move all around. It, it was one of those things, I think, that seemed very smart. But, of course, Bill Shorten came out and said, that's not a problem. If we can't change a conference at short notice, we can't run a country. And they changed the date of the conference and reorganised it. Again, a badly handled, inept political move from the, the government. Whenever they try to be clever, they trip themselves up. Well, it seems like they're trying to be too clever by half, but the Liberal Party claimed it was actually the Speaker's decision, and that's Tony Smith. In reality, if the PM doesn't get himself involved within this uh, process of selecting the date for by-elections and general elections, well, he shouldn't be the Prime Minister. Exactly. And they're looking at, even though it's not presented like this in the mainstream media, they're looking at a very unified and disciplined Labor team. To make such a bald decision that was purely politically motivated seemed to me to be stupid. It's almost an admission of we're going to lose, so we may as well cause as much mischief as we can. My feeling is that it was a bit of a Liberal Party own goal in this situation. They tried to be too clever by half, and I think they scored an own goal. The other poor political decision... This has been countered by another one on the other side is uh, the pre-selection of Georgina Downer in Mayo. Someone said this is too much like Downton Abbey, you know, handing on the family sinusia to the heiress. And of course, Georgina Downer has had a national profile over the last couple of years or so uh, with her constant appearances on ABC TV as a member of the IPA. <laughs> Georgina Downer, she is an associate of the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. She has actually been living in Melbourne for some time and she ran for the pre-selection in the seat of Goldstein. The pre-selection went to another candidate who was from the IPA as well, Tim Wilson. All of a sudden, she She's not a Victorian. She now supposedly lives in South Australia and she's available to run for the seat of Mayo. So I'm not too sure if the local electorate will take to this sort of thing too kindly. There's another factor here at play as well. She's actually a member of the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. Have we got too many of these sort of people in Parliament? I think we do. The IPA is a destructive influence on Australian policy and Australian life. It's filled with 
highly privileged people and privileged people deserve a spot at the democratic table don't get me wrong in the same way that underprivileged people do there's a lot of very american concepts in them of course uh, the notion of freedom which is never fully defined what is freedom you know what do we mean by freedom in australia is it the right to own guns the right to smoke ourselves to death the right to basically live without any laws except laws that affect the poor and those who can't afford it. Australia has never really had these debates on freedom. The national anthem, of course, states that we are young and free and doesn't say much more about it. I guess there's so many definitions about what freedom actually means because my definition of freedom might be someone else's definition of incarceration and, and vice versa. But the Institute of Public Affairs is a strange beast. It's been around since 1943. It was actually created by Charles Denton Kemp, father of Rod Kemp. He was a senior figure in the Liberal Party and still is. He's actually still the chairman of the Institute of Public Affairs. But the income that it has is around $4 million, but we don't know where that money comes from. It's a very secretive organisation. So there's a strong belief that Rupert Murdoch is highly involved with the IPA, as well as many other Liberal Party operatives. Well, it goes through to every right-leaning party in Australia, with the, I think the exception of what is now the United Australia Party, which was the Palmer United Party, I don't think had any IPA members, although that's more because I think of the personality of Clive Palmer. Uh, the Qatar Party, which is basically the old agrarian socialist, I don't think have IPA and I don't think Bob would put up with them. City people coming in and telling him that he's got to cut the ABC and things like that. I do think that it's a, a think tank of highly privileged people. The younger people in it don't tend to have a lot of real world experience. If you look back at their CVs, they were all in student politics and usually on the fringe of student politics. So very few of them were elected to any position. And they go straight away working in ministerial offices as soon as finishing university. And that's often a criticism that's levelled at the Labor Party and the Greens, that uh, they've got people that go from school to university to working within a, an MP's office, and then they become the MP themselves. Politics is filled with double standards, triple standards, hypocrisy and all those sort of things. I had a look at the register for members of parliament that come from the Institute of Public Affairs, and there's quite a few of them. There's Tony Smith, he's actually the Speaker of the Federal Parliament. There's Tim Wilson, Mike Nah. Han, he's actually not in federal politics. He's the leader of the WA Liberals. There's also Mitch Fifield. He's the Minister of Communication. There's James Patterson. There's David Leinhelm. He's not actually in the Liberal Party. So there's quite a few members of Parliament that originated from the Institute of Public Affairs, and I've got a feeling that this is far too many. They whinge about how Labor is infected by the union movement which is, of course, a total denial of the history that the Labor Party was set up by the union movement to represent the union movement's ideals and interests in Parliament. The IPA, of course, is a business body, and it is really the spirit of Ayn Rand, ultimately, and then Frederick Hayek and Milton Friedman thrown in for so-called intellectual credibility. Labor has its think tanks as well. It's got the Evert Foundation, the Fabian Society. There's one or two others. They don't have the influence the Fabians put out periodically, 25 Steps to a Better Australia or What Should We Do Next? 
and the party takes them up or it doesn't. The IPA seem to have way too much influence and they don't have any great intellects in Parliament. They used to. The Kemps were extremely smart. Both Rod and David were extremely smart ministers. Now it's, it's rabble. Lionhelm is a very strange individual whose whole thing seems to be giving the tobacco companies and gun companies a free run in Australia. James Patterson comes across as a spoiled brat who, at the first time of sign of any trouble, would run to his parents for help. Tim Wilson, the free speech advocate who wants to shut everyone up who doesn't agree with him. And Tony Smith, whose main achievement as speaker is that he's not Bronwyn Bishop, it seems. Yes, so that's one space that we'll have to continue looking at. So there's still quite a bit of time before the Super Saturday of by-elections, but who will win? Will we see any unusual things or any movement there? My feeling is that it's probably going to end up more or less the same as what we've got at the moment. It's not going to make any difference. I don't think we'll see a shortened Labor government sworn in on the, the 29th of, of July. But, of course, we live in extremely strange times after Tony Abbott, anything goes and anyone can be right and will be right. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and YouTube, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, an uncivilised debate about Western civilization. In 1989, Francis Fukuyama released his essay, The End of History, which proclaimed the triumph of the West, and it was based on the fall of communism in the Eastern Bloc. That was almost 30 years ago, but to continue propping up this triumph, the Ramsey Centre of Western Civilization, and there's no doubt about what its intentions are, it wants to fund a course on Western Civilization at the Australian National University. The ANU said no to the course, and a big debate has followed about academic freedom. Don't we already have too many courses about Western civilization in Australian universities and would this one be any different to what already exists out there? I have taught a couple of dozen courses in various institutions uh, and that includes four universities for about 25 years, something like that. All of them were Western civilization. Sometimes it was a micro, Australian politics, for example. Sometimes it was a bit more macro, European politics from 1789, popular music, folk music or roots music, as we called it, popular culture in various ways. Even the courses I taught on logic derived from you know, ancient Greek thinking and moved through people like Charles Peirce. So to say that Western civilization, and you know, mine was a very minor contribution to the, the greater field of thought, but they ran because every colleague I had just about also taught in Western civilization. If you didn't know the circumstances around it, 
you'd think, why would they do that? Everywhere teaches Western civilization. And it is right that we learn about Western civilization, of course. It's, it's what surrounds us. It's what we grew up in, how we interact with each other. Well, Paul Ramsey was a hospital and media entrepreneur. He died in 2014 and he left $3.3 billion to the creation of the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization. So that's, that's actually quite a lot of money. But I did check the website of the Paul Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization, and they've got an indicative curriculum which is available. And there's you can't get a grasp of what the course would be, how it would be set up. The It's basically a long book list which can, contains all of those uh, philosophers and ideas people from history. And it's it's very similar to what you'd expect to see in a classic philosophy course at a sandstone university. It's got Confucius, Aristotle, Burke, Hobbes, Cicero, Marx and Weber are in there as well. Even Freud gets a mention. And so does Les Murray, the Australian poet. So there's quite a lot in there, but I'm just wondering... What what would be different to to this particular course? The ANU already has quite a few courses that deal with these sort of issues as oh, well. Oh, some very good people down there who, who teach some excellent courses. Just on a side note, I don't know how Confucius constitutes Western civilization, as, uh, unless I'm very much mistaken. He was fairly well ensconced in China for most of his life and, and still has a deep influence on Chinese thinking to this day, he always seems to go into these types of courses, as does Sun Tzu, The Art of War. They're not really Western by definition. It's a really interesting thing. I mean, I, I was considering putting together my own satirical Western civilization and including people like Foucault and uh, NWA, Che Guevara, to see if they'd be interested in a course looking at that implications of the Mile Creek Massacre, which, you know, was happening around the same time as Beethoven and Jane Austen and, and uh, William Thackeray. It is this notion, and I think it comes from the same impetus that Brexit comes from, that Trump comes from, that we've lost this golden age in which everything was right and good and nothing ever went wrong, and we've given it over to these strange people who don't think like us. And we have to somehow get it back. And I saw the, the Ramsey thing and the way they've set it up. I think it's they're trying to redo the Rhodes Scholarship in Australia, a $25,000 scholarship for three candidates a year or something. You can bet that it's not going to be the chair of the young socialists, or the anarcho-syndicalists who get this stuff, no matter how good their grades are. It'll be young, privileged people with the right attitude. So the Vice-Chancellor of ANU, Brian Schmidt, he actually told his staff and he announced to the media that the ANU was not going to accept the course and the associated funding because it was going to compromise academic freedom and academic independence. There are quite a few other corporations or benefactors that do support Australian universities and that's in a whole range of different areas and in a whole range of different ways but with money comes influence. To go down this American road I think is a very dangerous thing. America is a land of 100 and 128 million people or whatever the population is. Australia has 20 million. As a result you can get a diversity of opinion in the states that you can't get here with, with money. We don't have and I hesitate to say the name of Bill Cosby, who can set up a university college for underprivileged African-Americans. That, that's not going to happen in Australia. We just don't have that type of philanthropy 
that's available. Every time there is a bit of philanthropy, it comes with strings attached. Or it takes away from perhaps more deserving stuff. Twiggy Forrest's donations, which backfired on him badly, as people said, okay, but you're running this and it wouldn't you have been better to just pay your legal share of tax and let the money be distributed less personally. I don't think it's a model that has been terribly successful, even if it's been financially so. Well, the Sydney University did say that it had a willingness to take up the offer from the the Ramsey Centre, but Sydney University is more of a conservative type of uh, university. But the the board of the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation, the one that was going to set up this course in Western Civilisation, includes Tony Abbott, former Prime Minister, and John Howard, also a former Liberal Prime Minister. So... My feeling is that they want to push forward this whole idea of conservative values, conservative teaching, and impose that in the university structure. So $3.3 billion, that is a lot of money. The Ramsey Centre could easily go, go ahead and set up its own sort of university structure. But my feeling is that they want to get the credibility of being within the existing university system. And what better way to get credibility than having it attached to the Australian National University or Sydney University or somewhere like that. $3.3 billion, which would earn $70 million a year or something just on interest, would be very tempting for any institution, particularly a sector that is continually being cut by the government. The rules are continually changing and it's very hard for them to do the job they have to do with the opposition that they sometimes get from the people who are paying them. Well, it seems like it's another battle in the long-term culture wars that the Liberal Party has been engaged with over the past 20 or so years. My feeling is that it's not so good to have this level of independent funding attached to the universities. There's too many strings attached. it's, It's going to be interesting. Could it be Tony Abbott's only major substantial achievement? You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and YouTube, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the ABC of attacking a national broadcaster. We dance like New Year's Eve. We, we dance from sheer relief. Whoa, everything must change. Just promise me this. No rose petal glasses Quickly consign To part of a past Just promise me this No rose petal glasses Quickly consign To part of Finally the king is dead We cried off with his head It's no secret that the Liberal Party doesn't think too highly about our national broadcaster. Recently... The Liberal Party Council voted to privatise the ABC and they had a 66% vote in favour of this. Although Liberal Party cabinet members in government, they've actually rejected this. But it was the former Liberal leader, Tony Abbott, the day before the 2013 election said... Uh, No cuts to education, no cuts to health, no change to pensions, no change to the GST and no cuts to the ABC or SBS but then implemented a $254 million cut to the ABC after he was elected. Can we trust the Liberal government with the ABC? It's such an interesting thing, isn't it? The ABC's charter is broadcasting for all Australians, which means that whatever your interest, you should be able to find something on the ABC. It might be at 
four o'clock in the morning, you know, on a public holiday, you should be able to find something. It's crucial in rural areas. For a long time, of course, I grew up with only two channels, the ABC and a commercial channel. And often the ABC had the better news. Well, the ABC is one of the great and innovative broadcasters in the world, but it's recently has been following the path of the BBC in the UK, Radio New Zealand and Canada Broadcasting Corporation. Now, I've noticed that in all of those examples, they've all been, and they are all public broadcasters, they've all been attacked by conservative politicians accused of this thing called left-wing bias. As a consequence, the public broadcasters have reworked themselves to avoid these attacks and they've become more, more sympathetic to a conservative agenda. The same thing has been happening to the ABC over the past, well, it's not just the past five years since the Abbott government was installed. It's been over the past 20 years. Like This has been a long-term project created by John Howard back in 1996. Yeah, I think you can even date it back to um, Fraser government. I think we can go back to 1980, although part of that was because they set up SBS television and so, or shaved the money out of the ABC to start F- SBS. But certainly, and SBS is one of the great television stations in the world too, certainly the Howard government had a, a vendetta almost against the ABC. And whether it was because they felt that The ABC was instrumental in Howard losing those elections in the 1980s. Whether it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and that whole IPA thing of privatising the ABC, it's certainly been an interesting approach from an ostensibly conservative side of politics. These motions also don't come out of nowhere. It was actually a motion presented at the Liberal Party Council meeting in Sydney. It was put up by the Young Liberals. So aside from the motion to privatise the ABC, which was passed, there was also a motion to move Australia's embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And I noticed that this is exactly the same agenda that Donald Trump has got in the US. So it's a little bit like little Trump in Australia. There's very close ties across conservative or right-wing figures across the world. There's a very American approach. And this we can probably trace back to the Koch brothers and their pernicious influence in American, but also everywhere else, politics. We see these great Australian patriots using terms such as sidewalk rather than footpath, using such terms as suggesting that the Australian flag is this somehow sacred thing that should never be burnt or disrespected in any way, in that very American way. This takes us back to the IPA. I think that there's a lot of American money coming into the IPA. Now, Australian right-wing organisations have done this before. The Australian Association for Cultural Freedom was indirectly funded by the CIA in the 60s. One of the policies of the CIA then was to fund cultural groups, realising that if you indirectly funded magazines and art galleries and you could get your message through and it put what was then the communists on the back foot. You know, Stalinism in particular hated what it saw as the decadence of modern art. So the CIA funded modern art and modern journals of ideas. In Australia, magazines such as Quadrant, which for many years was one of the very best journals in Australia. In Britain, I think it was Encounter. And America had these really terrific journals. Now, of course, without the spectre of communism, and I think the, the right have been emboldened since 1989 in particular, taking us back to the end of history, 
you don't have that subtle presenting of an idea and letting it settle. It's now you've got to present the idea as quickly and as effectively or as efficiently as you can. And that's partly to do with modern media. Things come and go in no time at all. In modern politics, there are lies, there are damn lies, and then there are statistics. I noticed that the Conservative, Chris Berg, who is another associate of the Institute of Public Affairs, erroneously said that the ABC was created with a left-wing bias opposed to commercial interests. And ironically enough, he actually said this while he was presenting on the ABC. But I've done my research into this, and that is not the case. It was actually created from a Conservative government. It was the Lions government in 1932. And it was primarily set up because of the failure of commercial radio in the 1930s. Australia was very slow on taking up radio, partly because of the distances involved, partly because the first radio sets were preset. So you bought your radio station radio, and it was tied into 2UE or 2BL in Sydney. Those were the first two stations. Um, Actually, there was another one before 2UE, but it didn't last. So radio took a little while to get going. They bought in adjustable sets which helped which meant that you could swap between the two three four and now i think there's 26 stations in sydney which australians i think tended to prefer also in the early days nobody knew how to run it anyway because uh, it was a brand new business model and the, the mistakes had to be made so, somehow it for him to say that it was set up by a left by left wingers was ridiculous it was menzies was the minister for communication hardly known as a, a left-wing radical, although given some of the members in Parliament today, Menzies would be dangerously left, I think. The other factor to take into account is it seems like we've got the, the attacks on the ABC coming from pretty much the same institution, the Institute of Public Affairs. It's coming from outside of Parliament and it's coming from within Parliament. So we have the Conservative Chris Berg putting out these false statements about the creation of the ABC And then we have the Minister for Communications, Mitch Fifield. He is also an associate of the Institute of Public Affairs. He's got his letter-writing machine going, and he's been writing so many complaints about the ABC over the past five months. One of the first ones he wrote was about Emma Alberici's article on tax reform and how the liberal tax reform package wasn't actually terribly good for the economy, and it was based on the untruth that tax cuts create jobs. Now, this has been shown time and time and time and time and time again. Tax cuts have never created jobs. In fact, what creates jobs is a higher tax rate, partly because there's more government money for infrastructure, partly because wages are tax deductible. And so the incentive is to hire people because it puts your own tax bill down. And that's a simplistic argument, I realise, but that is a factor in high employment. So I think that these attacks on the ABC, it's difficult to know what the actual agenda of the government is here. So obviously we can look at cutbacks, that's that's one agenda. One agenda is to privatise the ABC, although that came from their council rather than from the Liberal Party government itself. I keep thinking about this whole idea of the Liberal Party government kicking their own goals, like they're attacking the ABC, they're pushing forward the company tax ideas, and I think this is actually to their detriment. The ABC is very popular within the Australian community, and 
There is that old school of thought that the ABC is actually managed by the enemies of the Liberal Party and it broadcasts to the friends of the Liberal Party. So we've got this odd situation going on there. There's been so many polls and so much research over the past 20 or 30 years that shows that most people support the ABC and most people are supportive of the public funding of the ABC because they realise that it's a critical social service, it's a critical broadcasting service in Australia and it's a good balance to the mainstream commercial media interests that we have in, in this country as well. My feeling is that the more that the Liberal Party attacks the ABC, the more detrimental it is to their own electoral future. Once this was announced, the backpedalling of senior Liberal Party people saying, oh, no, that was never going to happen and we would never do it. And I think they realised very quickly. I think it was presented as something that was going to be embraced by the Australian people as a thank God we're getting rid of these dangerous socialists. But the backlash was very fast. It was very brutal. It came from a lot of traditional Liberal voters as well as the other side, obviously. It, again, misunderstood the importance of the ABC and the difference between complaining about the shows on the ABC and the establishment and the existence of the ABC. Now, of course, the ABC has done some very brilliant programs over the last 70 years. Of course it has. It's done some rubbish programs over the last 70 years. But that's as it should be. It should always be trying to find new things. It should always be trying to attract every person in Australia to watch it. I think one of the key quotes is a quote from Gerald Stone's book on Channel 9, Compulsive Viewing, in which he presents Kerry Packer as being hostile to the ABC because it took audience off him. He couldn't see why you would have this free radio station that all it did was stop people watching Channel 9. He could understand Channel 7 and Channel 10 because he took them on their own playing field and he could crush them. He didn't like the ABC. I suspect we'd have very similar attitudes from Kerry Stokes, who I suspect is an IPA favourer, if not member. And one of the really interesting pernicious influences is Rupert Murdoch, who, as a non-citizen here, owns 90% of the media here. Um, this is an extraordinary situation. It's an untenable situation as well. As far as the processes of democracy are concerned in this country, it's it's unsustainable. It's not a very good situation. And also within media all around the world, we've seen an entropy of media rather than a conglomeration of media. And there's too much concentration of media interests in, in Australia. And that flies in the face of what's happening everywhere else and also with changing technologies. But also the Labor Party has been quick to respond to these attacks on the ABC. So they quickly mentioned, Bill Shorten mentioned that they would undo the cutbacks that had been implemented in the most recent budget of $84 million to the ABC over the next five years. So the decisions by the Liberal Party, they've given the Labor Party a perfect platform to campaign at the next election. The own goal to end all, all own goals. And it's almost like you're in the grand final. You're six points behind. There's 30 seconds to go. You pass the ball to your star player and he runs the other way and resists the tackle of his own team members to make sure the goal goes right into the centre. I guess it shows the bubble that these people live in too, that they haven't gone out and spoken to the electorate to see what their electorates think, except the very small social groups they hang around and political groups they hang around. 
the backpedaling, I think you'll see grooves right through Parliament House from people just moving backwards as quickly as they possibly can. It's going to be an election issue. And of course, opposition shouldn't set the agenda. And they handed the Labor Party on a plate this agenda. Work choices has been mentioned in passing. That will come up again in the election. I think we'll be seeing a very poor election campaign from the Liberal Party again, although it was a very poor one last time and they got over the line. But I don't think it'll be enough this time. But as you mentioned before, it's almost like a 20-year-old government that's that's running for re-election and they were almost like that on the day that they won the election back in 2013. It's, it's, it's a tired government even before they started government. It should be an interesting spectacle to watch over the next few months. And all, and all this work about the ABC, all these mentions about the ABC and attacks on the ABC, company tax cuts. So it's obvious that we'll have an election pretty soon. We just don't know when because that's in the realm of the Prime Minister's mind. But I guess we'll find out soon. Yeah, and the Prime Minister, of course, may decide to surprise everybody and go without telling any of his cabinets. This has happened in the past. There may be a plan. I still feel November, maybe October. October has too many grand finals in it, I think. I think he's going to want to stretch it out. But then you can't. December and January, they have had elections in December, but they tend not to like them because it gets too close to Christmas. January... Sydney and Melbourne have closed down. And by then, you're getting into February starting to where you have to call the election anyway, and they lose the initiative. Before then, I don't know that he's going to, which is why I'm thinking around November. I'm still thinking about August, but obviously as time goes by, the chances of that happening diminish. But as you mentioned, anything could happen with this Prime Minister. We simply don't know where traditional ideas about when an election is likely to be held, well, they just get thrown out the window. So there's been lots of interesting things in politics over the past month, and that's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. We produce the program every month, and you can continue the conversation at our website, which is newpolitics.com.au, and there's all the links to our Facebook and Twitter page, as well as a series of articles, and we also put up the transcript of this program. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to all those listeners that sent through feedback. It's mainly been positive, but we did get one person that sent through and said that we're left-wing ratbags. But all we're doing is filling in the cracks left behind by the mainstream media. And I can't see anything wrong with that. Can you, David? We need more left-wing. The ABC can't do it all. And that's why we're here. So thanks for listening in and goodbye to our listeners. We'll see you next month.